Chapter Eleven of The Prince and the Pauper. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Molly Huang, Ho Chi Minh City. The Prince and the Pauper by Mark Twain. Chapter Eleven at Guy Hall. The royal barge, attended by its gorgeous fleet. Took its stately way down the Thames through the wilderness of illuminated boats. The air was laden with music. The river banks were beruffled with joy flames. The distant city lay in a soft, luminous glow from its countless invisible bonfires. Above it rose many a slender spire into the sky, encrusted with sparkling lights. Wherefore, in their remoteness, they seemed like jeweled lances thrust aloft as the fleet swept along. It was greeted from the banks with a continuous hoarse roar of cheers and the ceaseless flash and boom of artillery. To Tom Canty, half buried in his silken cushions, these sounds and this spectacle were a wonder unspeakably sublime and astonishing. To his little friends at his side, the Princess Elizabeth and the Lady Jane Grey, they were nothing. Arrived at the Dowgate, the fleet was towed up the limpid Walbrook, whose channel has now been for two centuries buried out of sight under acres of buildings. To Bucklesbury, past houses and under bridges, populous with merrymakers and brilliantly lighted and at last came to a halt in a basin where now is barge yard in the centre of the ancient city of london tom disembarked and he and his gallant procession crossed cheapside and made a short march through the old jewry and basinghall street to the guide hall tom and his little ladies were received with due ceremony by the lord mayor and the fathers of the city in their gold chains and scarlet robes of state and conducted to a rich canopy of state at the head of the great hall preceded by heralds making proclamation and by the maids and the city sword the lords and ladies who were to attend upon Tom and his two small friends took their places behind their chairs. At a lower table, the court grandees and other guests of noble degree were seated with the magnates of the city. The commoners took places at a multitude of tables on the main floor of the hall. From their lofty vantage ground, the giants Gog and Magog the ancient guardians of the city contemplated the spectacle below them with eyes grown familiar to it in forgotten generations there was a bugle blast and a proclamation and a fat butler appeared in a high perch in the left ward wall followed by his servitors bearing with impressive solemnity a royal baron of beef smoking hot and ready for the knife after grace tom being instructed rose and the whole house with him and drank from a portly golden loving cup with the princess elizabeth from her it passed to the lady jane grey and then traversed the general assemblage so the banquet began 
By midnight, the revelry was at its height. Now came one of those picturesque spectacles so admired in that old day. A description of it is to extent in the quaint wording of a chronicler who witnessed it. Space being made, presently entered a baron and an earl apparelled after the Turkish fashion in long robes of balkan powdered with gold hats on the heads of crimson velvet with great rolls of gold girded with two swords called scimitars hanging by great baldrics of gold next came yet another baron and another earl in two long gowns of yellow satin traversed with white satin and in every bent of white was a bent of crimson satin after the fashion of russia with furred hats of grey on their heads either of them having a hatchet in their hands and boots with pipes points a foot long turned up and after them came a knight then the lord high admiral and with him five nobles in doublets of crimson velvet, voided low on the back and before to the cannibone, laced on the breast with chains of silver, and over that short cloaks of crimson satin, and on their heads hats after the dancer's fashion, with pleasant feathers in them. These were apparelled after the fashion of Prussia. The torch-bearers, which were about an hundred, were apparelled in crimson satin and green, like moors, their faces black. Next came in a mummery, then the minstrels, which were disguised, danced, and the lords and ladies did wildly dance also, that it was a pleasure to behold. And while Tom, in his high seat, was gazing upon this wild dancing, lost in admiration of the dazzling commingling of kaleidoscopic colors which the whirling turmoil of gaudy figures below him presented, the ragged but real little prince of Wales was proclaiming his rights and his wrongs, denouncing the impostor, and clamoring for admission at the gates of Guide Hall the crowd enjoyed this episode prodigiously and pressed forward and craned their necks to see the small rioter presently they began to taunt him and mock at him purposely to goad him into a higher and still more entertaining fury tears of mortification sprang to his eyes but he stood his ground and defied the mob right royally other taunts followed added mocking stung him and he exclaimed i tell ye again you pack of unmannerly curs i am the prince of wales and all forlorn and friendless as i be with none to give me word of grace or help me in my need yet will not i be driven from my ground but will maintain it told how be prince or no prince his own one thou beast a gallant lad and not friendless neither here stand i by thy side to prove it and mine i tell thee thou mightst have a worse friend than miles hendon and yet not tire thy legs with seeking rest thy small jar my child i talk the language of these base canoracts like to a very native the speaker 
was a sort of Don Caesar, the bazan in dress, aspect, and bearing. He was tall, prim-built, muscular. His doublet and tocks were of rich material, but faded and threadbare, and their gold lace adornments were sadly tarnished. His ruff was rumpled and damaged. The plume of his slouched hat was broken and had a bedraggled and disreputable look. At his side, he wore a long rapier in the rusty iron sheath. His waggering carriage marked him at once as a ruffler of the camp. The speech of this fantastic figure was received with an explosion of jeers and laughter. Some cried, "'Tis another prince in disguise! Where's Hai Tong, friend? Belike, he is dangerous. Mary, he looked it. Mark his eye! Pluck the lad from him! to the horse pond with a cup instantly a hand was laid upon the prince under the impulse of his happy thought at instantly the stranger's long sword was out and the meddler went to the earth under a sounding thump with the flat of it the next moment a score of voices shouted kill the dog kill him kill him and the mob closed in on the warrior who backed himself against a wall and began to lay about him with his long weapon like a madman his victims sprawled this way and that but the mob tide poured over their prostrate forms and dashed itself against the champion with undiminished fury his moment seemed numbered his destruction certain when suddenly a trumpet blast sounded a voice shouted way for the king's messenger and a troop of horsemen came charging down upon the mob who fled out of harm's reach as fast as their legs could carry them the bold stranger caught up the prince in his arms and was soon far away from danger and the multitude return we within the guide hall suddenly high above the jubilant roar and thunder of the revel broke the clear peal of a bugle note there was instant silence a deep hush then a single voice rose, that of the messenger from the palace, and began to pipe forth a proclamation, the whole multitude standing listening. The closing words solemnly pronounced were, The king is dead. The great assemblage bent their heads upon their breasts in one accord, remained so in profound silence a few moments, then all sank upon their knees in a body, stretched out their hands toward Tom, and a mighty shout burst forth that seemed to shake the building. Long live the king! Poor Tom's dazed eyes wandered abroad over the stupefying spectacle, and finally rested grimly upon the kneeling princesses beside him. A moment then upon the urn of hertford a sudden purpose dawned in his face he said in a low tone at lord hertford's ear answer me truly on thy faith and honour uttered i hear a command the which none but a king might hold privilege and prerogative to utter would such commandment be obeyed and none rise up to say me nay none my liege in all these realms in thy person bides the majesty of england thou art the king 
Thy word is law. Tom responded in a strong, earnest voice and with great animation. Then shall the king's law be law of mercy from this day and never more be law of blood. Up from thy knees and away to the tower and say the king decrees the Duke of Norfolk shall not die. The words were caught up and carried eagerly from lip to lip far and wide over the hall, and as Herford hurried from the presence, another prodigious shout burst forth. The reign of blood is ended. Long live Edward, King of England. End of chapter 11